Welcome back, everybody, to How AI Built This. As always, this and every other episode of the podcast is brought to you by the beautiful people at Cathcart Associates, Cathcart are a technology recruitment consultancy uh, headquartered in Edinburgh. So if you're looking for a job in technology um, across the UK or indeed in Bangkok, or maybe if you want to hire some amazing people into your team, you should get in touch. Cathcart have got you covered. So today in the podcast, I'm speaking to Katie Gibbs. Katie has a really interesting background, very much as a non-technical person in the world of AI. So she's worked in big consultancies, ran small AI startups, um, and has recently started something new um, with a pretty impressive team um, alongside her. Uh, so I was really excited to kind of share her story and have the um, kind of opinions of someone who's non-technical in this world. Uh, kind of, I don't know, t- tell you a bit more about it. Um, so yeah, ladies and gents, please welcome Katie Gibbs. First of all, thank you for joining, Katie. Really appreciate your time. No, thank you for having me. I feel like we've talked about this for a while. I think back when you uh, spoke at our Scott ML event in Edinburgh, that was at the time where this was a bit of a seed of an idea that uh, I was too scared to do anything about. But when I was when we've done these events, I've always thought there's a few of the kind of speakers that have been there that it would make sense to actually delve in a little bit more into what they've done rather than talking about maybe the projects they're working on. So I'm glad we could set this up, especially now that you've got a kind of move you've recently done that we can talk about shortly. Yes, yeah, a lot of exciting things have been going on, so it's perfect time to catch up. Yeah, um, so um, we always start in education. People are probably bored of me saying that, but one of the things I always say is the reason I like to do it is because nobody's ever come on the podcast pretty much with the same degree or like background. Thankfully, that's still true today. Because having a look through um, your background, so you went to university in Leeds to do French and English, right? Yes, yeah, I did French and English. Nice. Um, so none right. of the data scientists or AI professionals I've had on the podcast so far have a French and English degree, so that's good. Yeah, I think to say that I stayed away from technology as much as possible <laughs> up until I went into the world of work would be a completely fair statement. Um, <laughs> I had my nose in a book the entire time. Most of my French degree was around French literature. Um, so it has been a bit of an interesting journey <laughs> moving into no, the tech world. I like that. And would it be fair to say, and I, don't, I hope I don't get this wrong, um, is it fair to say that you're very much a non-techie? Oh, yeah, hugely. Um, if anything, I'd say so, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for the non-techies of the tech world. No, I like that. Um, I can't remember who we spoke to. I think it was um, Sam Rhinus on a previous episode, but we talked about how there's so many different roles within AI and technology specifically that aren't techie, but you don't they don't really seem to get the same like press or exposure or whatever you might call it. But I think well, once we delve into this podcast a little bit more, but I think AI is a really good example of it actually needs non-techie people to make it work, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd actually say that one of the reasons that AI is starting to become more mainstream and much more successful within organizations is because people are starting to recognize you can't just have a data scientist um, building the algorithm. You need people to really think about the end-to-end experience. Uh, so actually, I think one of the things that's really interesting with my background is when I first started in the world of tech, I really saw myself as a translator between the tech team who knew far more than I would ever know uh, and the business stakeholders. And I had a crash course in technology to get up to grips and be able to explain it to them in a very easy to understand manner because I myself was working it out on as I went as well. Um, so <laughs> It sounds like a really random degree to have and then move into tech, but actually I think it's given me a lot of the skills that I needed in order to make it work. 
Yeah, so do you think just because you've had to do so much of that kind of um, language-to-language translation and kind of understanding things, I suppose at the start when you first started learning the language, all the kind of basics and then gradually build it up, is it quite a similar approach when maybe you've got a team of data scientists who are absolutely shit-hot building this amazing thing and they're trying to sell it almost to the FD? Like, is that where you think that really helps you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you don't know much about technology and you want to find out more, just immerse yourself in with the data team, with your developer, with the development team. Uh, it's such a great way of actually getting to grips really quickly with what they're working on. And it doesn't mean that I now know how to code just through watching people, but at least I've got a real appreciation. I understand the process they go through what they're thinking about and it means I can actually truly represent them and their needs to business stakeholders it's not just a tech person saying they want something for the sake of it I'm really understanding it and I can see the impact it has on the entire project yeah no I think that I'm sure we'll probably get onto this but I imagine if you think about kind of all the AI startups that have been cropping up although I saw an amazing stat and I can't remember it but it was something like 60 odd percent of AI startups in Europe don't actually use AI or something like that. I don't know if you saw that. Um, yes, it's one of my favorite stats to quote. Oh, um, <laughs> do, you know, do you know the actual stat rather than me butchering it? It's between 60 and 70 percent. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, oh, it's amazing. But I've, I've worked in the AI consultancy world for several years now and it's one of my biggest bugbears. I'll go to exhibitions and shows and I'll have all these product companies reaching out to me and everything says powered by AI. And I'm the person going and challenging them and going, is it really? Like, explain to me how this works. And my favorite example is there's one company where I really drilled into it. I was really keen to prove that they weren't using AI um, because actually I think it's doing a lot of damage to the reputation that AI has in the marketplace. And it turned out that they weren't using any automation, any AI. Uh, They had an offshore team in India processing all the data overnight so that it appeared as if an AI had done a lot of work whilst we slept. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, I noticed that the most, I think it was in January, I was in London for a recruitment expo and all of these, like... um, uh, all these companies had like pitches and and they had like um, stalls that you could go around and probably every second or third one was an AI re- AI powered recruitment tool and it was just hilarious because I've now recruited in this world for a while as well I was kind of interested and I asked one of them what they did and I still don't know what they do they gave me they gave me their leaflet like the, the salesman gave me his pitch and I, I genuinely don't know what they do so it's yeah it's such I, a noisy marketplace that people just adopting the tagline of AI uh, I mean blockchain had the same for quite a long time because it's what investors want to see yeah and no doing the due diligence to say well actually are you using AI are we investing our money in the right platforms and it's just creating so much unnecessary noise in yeah. a very confusing space even if you just focus on the platforms that are using AI anyway yeah no you're right and I before I, th- this is where I got to I told you I was going to end up going off on a tangent but um you can imagine like all the startups, especially in London, that do have some sort of AI capability. But the whole point I was going to get to was that if they don't have someone like you or somebody with a kind of business head, they might not ever get them off the ground because their platform may be really good, but they don't really know where they're going with it. So, yeah, I think you're right. You need you need a bit more than just the tech to cut through that noise, I suppose. 
Yeah, and I, there's a, another stat that's been flying around, and I know the stat, but I don't know where it came from. Um, but apparently, ninety percent of AI projects fail, and I think I know why they, they, there's such a high rate of failure. And it tends to be because so many organisations jump on the AI bandwagon and just go right. We just need the AI project, so they find a use case. They build it out with a couple of data scientists, a couple of developers, uh, and then they go, right, we're going to deploy it, at which point the people who actually are going to be interacting with that system go, oh, hang on a second, this isn't making things easier for me. It's not improving the experience for myself, for our customers. It's not actually generating any value whatsoever. So they just get caught in this proof of concept loop because they're desperately trying to do things, but they're not taking that step back to holistically analyze where the opportunities are for AI and how it can drive value from day one. It almost yeah. feels a bit like a box ticking exercise. Yeah. No, you mentioned investment earlier. I, I know a company who uh, kind of essentially made most of their technology team redundant, but kept on to a couple of their data scientists because they thought it would look good from an investment point of view that they had two data scientists. They weren't doing any work. Um, they were essentially getting paid to sit around. <laughs> But they Just thought to say they had them. Yeah, luckily they both left. But the basically the reason, and I don't know if this was ever said to them explicitly, but it was kind of heavily implied that it would look good from an investment point of view if we have two data scientists on the team, which is just hilarious. When the company was like, it didn't need at that time. I don't think anyway, it, it didn't need any sort of AI or machine learning. It just needed a solid product, and maybe further down the line they were ready for it. But yeah, I mean. That's that's one of the things I'm sure we'll cover in way more detail. But going back to you, you uh, I think you joined the grad scheme at Accenture, right? Is that the th- yes. went straight after yeah. uni? Yeah, I was the graduate who had no idea what they wanted to do. Went to loads of careers fairs, um, went to a lot of events that companies were holding, and I remember I went to a, a dinner that was hosted by Accenture, and they made this really their focal point of the pitch to try and get grads to join was if you don't know what you want to do we offer enough variety that you can work out what you want to do whilst you're with us and I thought eh, sounds like as good an offer as any <laughs> I might as well try and suss out what I like and what I don't like um, and I have to say actually it was a very good grounding and best practices for consulting and how to work with clients how to work with technology. Um, I think I said when we spoke a few weeks ago, Liam, my first project was a data center transformation project. And I had to go and pitch to very senior stakeholders about our plan for um, virtualizing servers. And at the time, I didn't know what a server was. <laughs> I genuinely <laughs> uh, had to go around. A, I, that was my first SOS meeting with the tech team being like, right, I need you to tell me everything <laughs> about data centers, about servers, so that I can come across as someone with somewhat um some sort of knowledge in this space but so right into the deep end right into the deep end you know going back to the language analogy I guess it was full immersion I had to learn how to speak the lingo very very quickly um and you know they would rise I learned very quickly that I didn't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> so that is one of the benefits of doing one of those grad schemes you, you move around quite a few projects very quickly and realize the bits you like and the bits you really don't like doing I quite like their idea of standing up in a room and saying, if you don't know what you want to do, because I mean, I know me and most of my friends when we graduated with kind of relatively generic business, economics, marketing type degrees, nobody really knew what they wanted to do. And obviously you get those handful of people that are dead set on what they're going to do from day one. But there is a big gap of like, people just aren't really sure. So no, I quite like that. And in fact, we've got a friend that um, ended up at a big bank that 
did exactly the same as you. Wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Did some sort of business degree, I'm sure. Ended up being a Java programmer for two years by accident. <laughs> just, that's yeah. not where you want to find yourself. <laughs> it's it's so bizarre. And I actually think that so many companies, I think they've got a lot better actually in the last few years, or certainly when I've been recruiting people into my team. I think there's there's a broader range of people coming through. But it used to be um, that based on what you, your degree was, you had to work in that field. And I really struggled. I didn't want to go into translating or interpreting. Um, I remember someone suggesting I work in a library. And I was just like, none of that fills me with interest at all. And I wasn't really good enough at languages to be an interpreter or translator. But I really like working with people. So I think that's why I decided to go into consulting and give it a shot and haven't left since. No, nice. I like it. And I was going to ask you, you mentioned a couple of these things already, which is great, but I was going to say, like, working for a big company like Accenture, um, some of the main things you'd probably learn are around kind of how projects actually work, some of the stakeholder management you mentioned. Did you also have some of those kind of unavoidable pitfalls of, like, working with a large company where maybe they don't react quick enough or there's quite a lot of, like, red tape to get things done? Or, or did you not really notice too much of that? I think it, it definitely existed. There was a lot of red tape, but because it was my first job out of university, you just think that that's an inherent part of working in a large organization, well, in any organization. So you don't really recognize that it's something that's unique to these huge organizations, but you are a cog in the wheel. Um, I was lucky that where I worked with some really great people. So I did pick up some really valuable skill sets that I went through. Um, but without the support of a few key individuals, I think I would have left a lot sooner. It, yeah. At the end of the day, you want to feel valued. You want to feel like someone's, especially at that part of your career, you want to feel like someone's supporting you and coaching you. And I don't think that that's inherent in these large organizations. You can't take it for granted that that's going to be the case. You've got to go yeah. out and find your mentor, find your coach and help them champion you so you get the right opportunities. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think, I can't remember if we had this discussion or if I, it was a very similar discussion with somebody else, if not, but we'll go quickly on to, you worked at two different AI consultancies, so Matter AI and, and Heron AI, and what I was going to get to there was they're much smaller than Accenture and you played a part in growing both. So do you think taking that leap into a smaller company has got you to kind of the position that you're in now because you've had to learn so many other things, whereas maybe you'd be going for your fourth, fifth promotion at a big consultancy just now, but not having the same breadth of skills. Yeah, absolutely. I think moving into the startup space was absolutely the best thing I could have done. I was, I'm trying to think, I think I was the fifth employee at Matter AI. So I went from something as huge as Accenture to literally the other end of the spectrum um and off the back of it i got so much more exposure because there are only five of us you had to pull your weight you had to do a bit of everything and you know, then moving into heron i ended up actually running heron for a couple of years uh, so i did everything from sales uh through to relationship management coaching people in my team to you know thinking about what the broader strategy is for the organization and I would never have come across those sorts of opportunities in a larger organization. And I think I think it really comes down to you get pigeonholed very early on in your career. One of the reasons I left Accenture was because actually they kept trying to pigeon me into a telecommunications industry because I'd worked there for about 18 months. Um, and they also wanted to put me in the data center box as well. 
And as I said, I really didn't enjoy that. So it was time for me to leave. And I'd done quite a bit of work in the innovation space around AR, VR and AI. And my biggest frustration was that in a large organization like Accenture, they were looking at using those these brilliant technologies as a way to win new client work that would just be very traditional projects. So it was very much seen as a way just to lure people in rather than actually implementing truly innovative technologies alongside clients. This is quite a while ago, so I'm sure they've changed their approach since. Well, I was about to say, I'm not sure. I'm not speaking about Accenture here at all, but I'm not sure that the big consultancies have changed some of that. And it might be slightly... uh, a kind of pessimistic view, but I've definitely seen the kind of big four type companies, like the huge consultancies that all of a sudden hire loads of data scientists or AI professionals, pay them a pretty decent whack. And when I actually speak to them, the data scientists themselves, they, they tell me that there's not really much going on. Like a lot of it is proof of concept, like white paper type stuff within the organization, go on a few pitches to try and get some big business. But it ends up being that they deliver their core offering and the AI stuff kind of either gets forgotten about or is kind of like badged on at the end. Like it's not, uh, it isn't like what they're all about. Yeah. And actually I have seen that a little bit when I've been interviewing people because um, I tend to hire AI consultants. So I always thought being from a consulting background, like with a very clear job description, there would be people with certain experience that would apply for that role. And every time I've tried to hire people, I get such a broad range. I get people, everyone from interns and organizations um, going for it, which is you know, great to see that, that they're that enthusiastic through to people who've been partners in consulting companies. So I think part of it is AI consultants become this umbrella terminology for anyone that's worked in the AI space. And it's becoming very difficult to pinpoint what skills you need, what experience you need in order to be a good AI consultant. And yeah. the reason I think these large consultants, like the big four consulting do that is because it's so much easier to sell in an umbrella AI consultant to a large bank, for example, because then the the client themselves don't really know what they do. They don't know what they can do. They don't know what to expect, but they like the idea of having an AI consultant on their roster. Yeah. yeah. There's just so much noise in this space. So, you know, we'd spoke earlier around all this noise in the marketplace, but actually just around recruitment, I think it's incredibly difficult to see any consistency in the skills that people have. Yeah. No, we had, um, I did a presentation a while ago and I remember saying that part of my job when we were doing a lot of data scientist recruitment in Manchester was telling companies didn't need to hire a data scientist and like a couple of the people in the audience couldn't get their head around it. They were like, you would just turn business away. And I was like, well, it wasn't really turning business away. It was letting them know that they're not ready really or what they're hiring for is not a data scientist. So please don't call it that because it's just going to make it more difficult Thankfully, some of that has gone away a little bit, but I think you're right now in the in, in the kind of different roles that people are hiring for. There's so many different names or job descriptions for these weird and wonderful things that aren't really defined properly. So it can be very difficult to, to kind of stand out. Yeah, and I, and I think coming back to your original question around the difference between working for a big organization and a small one, my skill set is very different now to what it would have been if I'd stayed with Accenture um, for the last several years of my career. And it's because I've had to jump at different opportunities. And I think it's partly my personality. I dive in the deep end. I'll make sure I feel really uncomfortable <laughs> most of the time. Um, I'm very comfortable being uncomfortable. But things like um, public speaking, I 
if I was working for a big four organization at this point in my career, you know, the number of years I've got against uh, my career, I wouldn't be having the opportunity to speak at conferences and really develop that skill. Whereas when you're in a startup, there's only a few of you who are willing to put yourself out there. And it's terrifying. Um, yeah. As I'm sure you can appreciate, Liam, you kind of just put yourself out there, you have a go and see what works and what doesn't work. But yeah. that's been a huge benefit for me of working in the startup world. And I know everyone's got different experiences, but I'm a huge advocate of starting your career in the consulting world with one of the big four, get that really solid foundation. And then after about two, three years, jump ship, go somewhere really small and challenge yourself every single day because yeah. you will pick up so many more skills and your career will accelerate. Yeah, I think a good point about that is that if you do join one of the big consultancies for a few years, get your ground in, learn a little bit about what it is you like, don't like what you did, and then maybe you do join a small company and maybe you hate it, and that's okay, but it means you can go yeah. back to the big company and appreciate what you had rather than being there for 25 35 years and potentially missing out on opportunities because yeah joining a startup's a little bit scary but in the world of ai you're, you're quite lucky in a sense that we're at that kind of real boom period just now like th- there's jobs to be had on the most part i mean obviously we'll take covid out of it so yeah there's an, opp- there's an opportunity to kind of learn uh, and progress maybe quite quickly and go back and, uh, and be better than you were before yeah I, I know people in my network who left uh one of the big four went to a startup realized the grass wasn't greener they didn't like it any better so went back to their previous employer and actually jumped up a couple of rungs on the ladder as they did so yeah so Actually, it was worth leaving, not only to find out they didn't like working for a smaller company, but then they went in with extra promotions and being in a much more senior position, which just highlights how much big four companies value the experience you get at a smaller organization, that you can actually skip some steps by taking a bit of time out. And looking at um, Matter AI and Heron AI, were they both um, what you would kind of class as AI consultancies delivering data-led projects for different customers? Was that what both did? Um, so Matter was really interesting because it was uh, the two founders were essentially one was an AI advocate had been working in the AI field for years and the other was a service design expert. So their aim was really to combine this human-centric approach to AI to real-life problems that companies were facing in order to design the right solutions to be used in the right way. Yeah. Um, and I'd done quite a lot around surface design at Accenture, so that really caught my attention. And to be honest, it was then that really got me interested in AI because I was going, well, everyone else is talking about AI as the be or end all, and they're missing the the rest of the narrative ai is a very small part of the experience that you're building out you've got to think about the end-to-end customer journey what what are the gaps what are the pain points then consider what is the right solution it might not be ai um and then build it in a way that you can really see what the benefit is for the people that are involved in it rather than just thinking about cost savings or reducing fte yeah okay yeah so so I'd say neither of them were particularly data-driven. Heron was set up to be an agnostic AI consultancy. So we still had this kind of service design, people-centric value at the heart of everything that we did. Um, but our key thing was actually to be an independent advisor. 
Uh, so we did quite a lot of work with the big banks um, who, as I'm sure you can imagine, have all these AI product companies knocking on their door 24-7, yeah. trying to worm their way in. And they just felt overwhelmed. And and I think this, this is the problem, and you know, maybe we'll come on to it later, but so many AI platforms are offering their services free of charge at the moment because they they do want to add value. They do want to do something worthwhile, but they also want their war story from COVID. And we've had so many clients get in touch to just say, I'm fed up with people trying to offer me their services for free. I don't know whether it's the right thing for me. And it's just making it even more difficult to make a decision in very difficult circumstances. Yeah. Um, so I've, I'd say kind of I've been banging this drum for a very long time that I really think that organizations need that helping hand to identify the right problems, the right solutions. And if it is AI, help in identifying whether they should build something from scratch or if there's something out of the box that would be a good fit. And if it is the latter, there's normally about 20 different products that do the same thing. So they need some help assessing which is the best fit. Yeah, no, I like that. I think that's, there's, I mean, I'm sure there are companies that do this, but there's probably an application for that across just the technology industry. The amount of different things that you can get offered that do the same thing to a greater or lesser extent, but you don't really have any, I don't know, it's quite hard to pick which one's which. I mean, I'll give, I'll give you an example. We just um, looked at uh, completely ripping out our telephony just before um, COVID and getting a new supplier. Obviously, we all now work from home, so we've been trusting or relying on an app to tie it all in. And we'd already decided to move, and I'm sure one of them, I can't remember which one, now badge it up as like an AI telephony service when it's just an app on your phone. And <laughs> we, just needed, we, we just needed to work. Like, we don't need to buy the AI part of it. We don't need to buy all of this stuff. We just need the telephone to work. Yeah, you just need the basic functionality. You don't need all the bells and whistles. Yeah, and some of the bells and whistles might be great, but they're normally hidden behind other things as well. Like, it, it'll be a per-user thing, or there'll be a maximum capacity thing, and you don't really get any of that until you start using it, and then it's too late. So, no, I, I like the fact that, you, that there is a potential to do that um, and just maybe have a more kind of neutral viewpoint which can be quite hard when people seem to be quite like steadfast on one supplier of one thing yeah and to your point you said it sounds like this is something that across the tech field would be really valuable and actually that's kind of where I've moved to with my new role because I've worked in the AI space for several years now and especially working for various consultancies you get to the point where there's a lot of pressure to sell to sell AI, regardless of whether it's a good fit or not. Yeah. And actually, I'm somewhat trying to get myself out of the pigeonhole I've developed for myself now to say, actually, I, I want to be an independent advisor across technology because I'm a really firm believer that AI can do some brilliant things. But if you put it in the wrong place at the wrong time, it's going to cause more problems than it solves. Yeah, although I'm very passionate about what AI can do, I really... I, I'm really value being able to take that step back and say, this isn't the right technology for you right now. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really good point that maybe needs to be kind of shouted a bit more about consultancies and what they're doing. Like it doesn't have to be AI. And just before we get to what you're on just now, so we kind of first met when you joined BGSS. So they are a lead space consultancy and you joined kind of as their head of AI, kind of for the UK, right? It wasn't just in London or Leeds, it was just everywhere. Yeah, and did a bit of work in the US as well. Nice. Um, so that was kind of you going full circle, not full circle, but it was you, uh, I suppose, completing the different sizes of companies. Because you probably argue that although they're quite a big technology company, they're not a 
ginormous consultancy and they're not a startup. So you kind of went to that mid-sized, is that fair? Yeah, yeah. So there are about 1,600 people. And I, th- I really think I wanted to see what happens when you join a mid-sized company, if it's more more in line with the startup experience, which I'd had, or if it actually starts to go far more towards the bureaucracy bureaucratic uh, environment you have in the big four yeah and I have to say actually I was really pleasantly surprised there was a lot of autonomy there was a lot of um, freedom to kind of spot opportunities and go after them and yeah as you know I did a lot of public speaking to promote the AI capabilities within BGSS which is how we met Um, and that was a great opportunity to go and meet all these different people meet all these different clients and get a much better understanding of how different industries are approaching AI. Um, So I think it's fair to say until then, most of the work I'd done was in financial services and insurance. So it was nice to kind of branch out. I did quite a lot of work with public sector, NHS, and I did a fair amount in the energy and utilities space as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, they've got huge like use cases for some not even that complicated data work, but just making use of some of it. We've we've done some in that area as well. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, so let me know. Um, But was it tough? Um, So from the outside looking in, BGSS are really well known for their approach and their kind of like agile, like delivery of projects. And I think from what I know of them, they're very, very well known across Leeds um, and now the UK for really, really good high-level software and testing projects like delivering them for huge companies like you just said was it hard to try and compete with that reputation and make them well known for data as well or were they complementary rather than competing um it's a really good question because actually it tends to be two ends of the spectrum either i was speaking to new clients who were saying oh it's great that you could do all this stuff with ai but do you really have the capabilities to build things uh, that we can scale and drive value from in the long term, which is where BGSS core strength really sits. Um, yeah. So kind of had people coming to it new going, oh, you know, we didn't realize you could do this. Or to your point, we had um, organizations who really knew us as software en- engineers and um, being able to do really high quality code and didn't see how AI really fitted into that, um, especially with this people-centric approach that I was bringing into it. So it was quite a transformation uh, that we we were driving there, and yeah, it, it was it was fascinating. And I think that you know, with the with Spark, which is the service design agency of uh, BGSS, I yeah. think that they've got a really strong approach in the marketplace to kind of blend human centered design with really strong tech and build capabilities. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I just as I mentioned, I, I just struggled a little bit focusing so narrowly on AI. I think there are so many other opportunities for technology. Um, and I did miss the startup environment. I miss the buzz of building something from scratch and uh, you know, taking ownership for everything that you're doing. So it was, it was a great experience, um, but very excited about what I'm now working on as well. Yeah, so that was a, essentially a kind of half an hour whistle-stop tour from education to 2019. But then, so... I think it was, is it only like two months, three months um, in that you're now one of the founding team of Emergence Partners. So let's pretend for five minutes that COVID-19 never happened. What was the plan for Emergence Partners and, and where did that kind of um, idea spark from? Um, so 
first of it sparked actually from just a group of so the founding partners all getting together and realizing we had a really common view. Um, so the founding partners are made up with people with brilliant experience um, from people who've built and developed, scaled, and then sold uh, automation consultancies into the likes of Accenture um, through to working at Facebook, um, you know, lecturing at Harvard University. So we've all got very different experiences and very interesting viewpoints on what's going on in the marketplace. But we all had this shared vision that there's not a consultancy out there at the moment that can really help drive long-term profound transformation with technology. And one of the key reasons for that is that we don't believe that executives have a good enough understanding of what's possible with technology. So they tend to outsource a decision either to a tech consultancy or to um, something like their tech team. And we're really trying to change that because how on earth can you take responsibility for decisions you're making if you don't really understand what's possible with tech? How can you have a really bold vision for the future and really take advantage of the benefits that new and advanced technology are bringing to the markets if you don't understand it? Um, so, and, and actually off the back of that, we did a bit of research and found out that only 45% of execs are confident in their own digital skills and are confident uh, navigating the digital economy with their organization. So that's, when you think about that, 65% of executives aren't confident in, with their knowledge of tech and what it means for their organization. And so we just saw that as a huge opportunity to really ha hold their hands and say, it's okay not to know. There's a lot going on. I found when I was in between jobs over a year ago, I took six weeks off. And when I came back, I had no idea what was going on in the AI marketplace. <laughs> so like it moves really quickly, even if you're in this space. And yeah. it's completely natural that you would need a bit of support and a bit of help in order to get your head around it. Um, so that's really where we started. And actually, our mission hasn't changed a huge amount um, due to COVID. So we're really focused on inspiring and helping companies to profoundly benefit from existing and emerging technologies. And we've got this really bold mission, which is to make the world a better place to live and work. So we're not just thinking about how do we improve business performance for our clients. We're thinking about how do we improve the employee experience, the customer experience? How do we think about the impact it has on society as a whole, on the environment? Because uh, a lot of these AI and you know, new tech systems require huge amounts of computing power. So you've got yeah. to question, is that the right use of resources? Um, so I'd say actually COVID, you know, the timing isn't great because we were a, a month in to starting the company when it hits. Yeah. Um, but actually we think that our name is very apt for coming out of this because we, and we're starting to see over the last few weeks that people have moved on from fighting fires. They're now in a position to really think about what does the new normal mean for us? Um, and they're starting to see that we could be a really key partner in developing this vision for the future. And what we do is we help them kind of set this really bold vision now that they've got this technical knowledge and they, so they can make informed decisions. And then we hone in on what can you do over the next three and six months in order to take some significant steps towards that vision. So we're not taking the typical consulting approach of let's come up with a three to five year plan. It will take us one year to develop it. And when you're six months in, you'll realize that it's out of date because the tech has moved on. Uh, so we're taking a really agile and flexible approach because 
we recognize that nothing's going to be set in stone, but it's going to be crucial for organizations to survive into the future and, and not just survive other crises like, uh, you know, never lockdown due to coronavirus or environmental crisis, but actually just due to the advancement of technology. They don't, this is a real opportunity for companies not just to survive, but to thrive and really become a leader in the marketplace. Uh, so that's really where we see ourselves helping these organizations to achieve a really bold vision using technology in the right way. No, I like it. Um, and we had a really interesting chat when uh, we caught up about what the new rule was. And I think um, you mentioned to me that it's actually a pretty unique time to be starting a business because normally what happens is the founding team of any startup will get together, they have a seed of an idea, they'll do a little bit of business development, they'll get a project on, and then they'll just go at it and deliver something and then they might do that a few times and they carve out a niche or they realize they're very good at one thing um, or whatever whatever happens further down the line. You guys are now in a position where, like you said, you're a month in. So it actually gives you the luxury of really honing in on what it is you're offering without, without almost without the distraction of anyone else. Yeah, so you know, from previous experiences, I know what normally happens is you have really good intentions to build out your sales material, your marketing material, um, identify key markets you want to play in. Uh, but then you get a course up in client projects and you're essentially building the plane as you fly it. So it has been quite nice to have the opportunity to really focus on what our strategy is, what our company values. Um, I think that's the other thing that's really important for us as founding members is that we have to build, we have this amazing opportunity to build a new culture in the tech consulting space and we can set the bar very high um i personally have had some good and some bad experiences in the tech field i think being a woman in tech is still very difficult but we have an opportunity to do things differently and ensure that we create a truly diverse and inclusive environment from day one and um, so that's one of the reasons that i've really enjoyed actually having a little bit of time to really think about well how do we embed that in everything that we do uh, through to actually thinking about what are the consulting services we want to offer? How do we ensure that it's really going to drive profound transformation for our clients and not just quick wins, which I think so many consultancies go in kind of promising so much from a first engagement that they overpromise and underdeliver. Whereas we're yeah. actually looking at almost start small, start really small, deliver some incremental gains, but constantly having your eye on what the exponential vision is at the end of it um and and we have seen over the last few weeks that a lot you know, we had a, we were lucky enough to have a few um projects going on before covid and we've seen a rapid increase in demand over the last few weeks and um, part in part because we launched uh, actually last week as no two weeks ago so we did a webinar with everest around uh, resilience in times of disruption uh, you know, we're really having to you know, tr try out our own methodology on ourselves at the moment and to ensure <laughs> that we are being truly adaptable and um, making the most of you know, a difficult situation. Yeah. So we've got lots more coming in the next few months to kind of con continue building some noise in the space. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really exciting time. Um, I think the only thing is that we only had a few meetings all together before lockdown happened. So it, that, the only difficulty we've really had is working remotely from day one with the entire team, which yeah, that's not I ideal. do miss. I really miss being around people. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, um, uh, that must be the most difficult part of it. And you mentioned the unique opportunity of starting something yourself um, in terms of like setting the, the culture and, uh, and the bar really, really high. Um, it kind of leads on quite nicely. So you've worked in startups, um, mid-sized companies, large consultancies. Uh, do you have any kind of thoughts or, or, or essentially kind of like what top tips for building what you would class as like a really high performing team? Like, is there anything you've taken from each position you've been in to where you are now uh, and kind of that will really stand you in good stead? Yeah, I think transparency is the number one, the, the, the number one tip, because if you don't have transparency, your team don't know what they're pushing towards. They don't, they don't invest in what the vision is for the organization. But equally, if you don't know what your team are working on, it's very difficult for you to congratulate them on doing well. Um, and also, I think the biggest problem I've encountered across all types of consultancies I've worked in is it's so easy to assume success is the norm. So you don't recognize people when they're having a really great day, when they've done something remarkable, but the moment something goes wrong, you, you know, people jump on them because you have such a high standard that people succeed all the time. And I just think it creates a really toxic environment. And I, you know, I've, I've seen this in all types of companies and I do, I think it's inherent in the consulting industry um, so we're really building out this uh, culture around celebrating success and learning from lessons learned so that people aren't afraid to say if they failed or if they messed up, um, you know, just hold your hands up, go, oh, that didn't go as well as it could. What can I do better next time? And we're living and breathing that as founding members at the moment. Um, we're using a tool for uh, performance management internally at the moment. And you give high fives on a Friday and it's such a nice way of recognizing people, especially whilst you're working remotely. And it really shows that yeah. you care about what your colleagues are working on and they're adding value. So I, I think transparency is one of the biggest issues. And it will be you know, something that's very much at the forefront of our minds is how do we ensure we maintain that transparency as we grow? Because we've got very ambitious growth plans. Um, but yeah, it's something we're very much committed to. Yeah, no, I like that. And it actually got me thinking, uh, literally, as you were speaking there, one of the things that I've probably noticed growing. So when I first joined Cathcart, there was like seven of us or something like that. Um, and now that we've got like 40 odd people across a couple of different offices, you probably get guilty. And you've probably seen this in consultancies as well. Back when I would started, you probably celebrated a lot of smaller wins because the team was a lot smaller. I mean, you get bigger and bigger, and you have slightly more expectation on people. Maybe some of those smaller wins get lost. And not really because anyone's ignoring it, but just because things become more normal very, very quickly. Yeah. So you can kind of you kind of lose those, even if they're super minor like celebrations, like you can lose a little bit of that as you get bigger as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think part of it is once you, it feels like once you've celebrated something once or said thank you once, you don't need to say it again. But people have various roles across the organisation. And for some people, it might be a real win getting someone to use the right tool <laughs> for a particular process. Um, whereas for others, it could be a big sale. It really varies. And it's not to say that one is more valid than the other, because both would require a huge amount of effort and you know, people thinking outside the box to try new ways of driving that engagement yeah no 100 percent. and i suppose one of the things we were going to go on to and you touched upon it earlier um but it's probably quite a good thing to to have a, a bit of a longer chat about you mentioned kind of one of the big reasons of pushing that emergence is that 
being a woman in technology is still quite challenging. I went back and um, read the article that you posted on LinkedIn. I think it was a few weeks ago, maybe, about the fact that the kind of stats haven't really changed in terms of how many women work in technology in a decade. Yeah. Which if I had, if you hadn't, if you'd have asked me this on the podcast and I didn't know the answer to it, I would have said that there would have been a massive change just because I think I've now worked in recruitment for seven years, maybe eight years. And um, I feel like for the last decent number of years, there's been so much more, not publicity, that's the wrong word, but like a lot more people pushing and expecting more when it comes to diversity. But the fact that it's not really changed in that time is quite terrifying. Yeah, it's downright depressing. Um, yeah, it's probably it's a better only, way of putting it. It's <laughs> yeah. um, so only 15% of people working in STEM um, in the UK are female and only 5% of people in leadership positions in STEM companies are women. So it's we've got a long way to go. Um, and I was quite surprised when I was doing the research for that article because I would have expected some small gains. Hmm. But I think the problem is, is that you get so many people coming into a tech field through grad schemes. And then as they start to, as you start to go up the different layers of an organization um, and go up in seniority, you just see less and less women. And you know, there's a whole host of reasons as to why that is. Uh, I fundamentally think it comes down to it's still a very male dominated culture. And yeah, I've spent the majority of my career being the only woman in, on a project, the only woman in in a Thai company, the only woman in a client meeting. Um, I had one client meeting where I went in and I was leading the pitch and they are, they gave me their coffee orders. So uh, the, there is it's, there's still this inherent um, discrimination. And I think some people are really trying very hard to build, like to adapt their culture and really embrace uh, a more diverse workforce. But it's it's the little things that people do. It's you know you go into the office and everyone's talking about football. There's no way I could join in that conversation. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you you probably could because you would just learn it in like a day or so, like you did with data centers. But I know what you mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I had uh, my favorite stat. When I say favorite, I mean like probably most damning stat that I, I heard. I think it was in a chat. Um, at, uh, the Turin Fest in Edinburgh, the CTO of Monzo, who I've, her name has completely escaped me right now, um, but she did a talk um, around diversity and it was just about how much better those teams perform. There was loads of crazy stats on um, like the revenue and stuff, but the one that I found most interesting was around like the percentage of men who would apply for a job that they didn't meet all the criteria for yeah. was, was something like 80%. And then the percentage of women who wouldn't apply for a job if they met like most of their criteria or, along those lines was a tiny percent. Yeah, so like, it, it feels like there's got to be a perfect match for, for them to apply, whereas it's the complete opposite for males. So I find that stat really interesting. I think because I've had such a varied career and I've put myself in very difficult and uncomfortable positions, I'm actually quite comfortable applying for roles where I can only do half of what's on the job description. But I've worked and coached a lot of women who have felt like, and actually, actually quite a few men as well, who've just gone, well, I can't do everything on the list. I, I won't apply. And again, I think there's something in the mindset that we're drilling into people is that you have to be a perfectionist. You have to be able to do everything. And I'm such a firm believer that being a T-shaped person is much more valuable 
Um, so being able to do a little bit of everything and being an expert in nothing, which is exactly what I am, <laughs> um, is a really, it's a very valuable role to play. And it's not to yeah. say that you don't need experts, but not everyone needs to be the expert in the room. Yeah. Um, and it's something that really frustrates me, actually, because and we talked about this last time we caught up. And I do wonder if this is why the stats around women in tech are so low. Um, whenever you talk about women in tech or women in AI, you assume they have to be a developer or a data scientist. And there are so many other roles out there that are open to a much more diverse workforce, people with many, many different skills. Yeah. And most of the tech projects I've worked on have the majority of roles on that project team have been non-technical. You need a project manager, a business analyst, a user experience designer, front-end designer, you know, testers to somewhat don't necessarily need to be overly technical. So yes, you need a few key people in that team who are very technical and brilliant at doing the technical bits and really know what they're doing. But there's a whole host of softer skills around this, which are absolutely crucial. And especially as I've seen the AI space, if you don't have a service designer and a UX designer upfront, really thinking about the end-to-end -end experience and the impact that AI can have upfront, uh, then you're going to get into real trouble when you try to scale your AI solution and you're much more likely to fail because of it. So, yeah, I've had a few people question uh, a few times whether I'd consider myself uh, to be a woman in tech. And I say absolutely because there's a lot of non-technical roles in the tech field now. Um, but yeah, it does become it turn into a bit of a religious debate with some people who are very, very much in the camp of you must be able to code, you must be able to work with data in order to work in tech. I think the biggest way around that is if you took off the people out who are non-technical, how many of the solutions would still be in existence? Probably not that many. Yeah. A lot of proof of concepts. <laughs> yeah, just loads and loads yeah. of really well thought out proof of concepts that don't go anywhere. So yeah, I think there's definitely a place for both. I think that's not, there's no debate on that. So no, I mean, is there anything that you're doing or want to do in that kind of kind of diversity space that you think would be really beneficial because i think again our conversation keeps melding into one here but i'm sure when we spoke last time there was that kind of nods to all these tech companies that have their um it's women in tech day or it's international women's day all over their their company pages but it's not really in their culture <laughs> whatsoever yeah i i one of those people i think if you put out so many promotional materials around women in tech just one day a year then you're probably not a very inclusive um, working environment. It shouldn't be just one day of the year that you celebrate how diverse your teams are. Um, and a lot of those companies, if you look closely, you see the same people year on year cropping up because there's not many, there won't be many women, there won't be many people from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, yeah, and I, I have to acknowledge that I am in a more privileged position because I'm, I'm white and you know I'm discriminated against because I'm female, but I think it must be much harder being an ethnic minority and being a woman in this industry. So I think I think we just got to go beyond one day a year celebrating uh, women in diversity. And I think that we really need to reassess um, the value that everyone brings to the organisation. And I, I think we've got to mix up the C-suites. Um, some of the clients we're working with at the moment have predominantly female C-suites, and it's a completely different relationship working with them and they've got very different viewpoint of what they want to do what they want to achieve and I think most importantly how they can coach people and 
well, most of the companies I've worked with have been all male board, all male um, exec. And it's very difficult to feel like you belong in an organization where you don't see yourself represented. And certainly as being someone who's been senior in those organizations, I felt like there was a glass ceiling because there wasn't another woman on the board. There was nowhere else for me to go. Um, yeah. So I really, I really hope that in the next few years we'll start to see that change. Um, and I think there's some wonderful women out there kind of leading the charge. But it, it, it has to be in collaboration with men. And I think that what executives need to see, especially if it's a male-dominated exec, is they need to recognise that companies who emphasise the diversity of their workforce tend to get 35% additional returns on revenue. Yeah, that was one so of the stats. So it's a financial... Yeah, it's a, it's a financial imperative in order yeah. to be more diverse. It's not just a tick box. It's not just so that you can put out a video on International Women's Day. It <laughs> is going to not only create a better place to work, you're going to retain more staff, um, but you're going to be a more innovative company and you're going to achieve more profits as a result. It, it's it's a win-win scenario and it's really frustrating. It's taking so long for organisations to get on board. Do you think, and I, I'm, this is where I'm going to get in trouble in this podcast, because I just think off the top of my head and then just say things. So <laughs> do you think that something like COVID might help with, this is just one issue with women in tech, it's not uh, across the board, but if there's more flexibility around, okay, you don't have to come to the office Monday to Friday, um, we're way more flexible in our working patterns. Because um, I think a lot of people think of flexibility and it's just because, maybe a software developer doesn't like working nine till five they prefer working at night but there's huge issues with even like things like childcare. um i think is probably one of the biggest things if you can work from your house and then you can work flexibly around things like childcare when everything goes back to normal is there potential for people to kind of go further and not be held back just because they can't be in the office yeah i think so um actually i saw something Actually, I saw it a few weeks ago and then a colleague drew my attention to it again a few weeks ago. Um, someone had in their email signature, I work um, sporadic working hours. Uh, this does not mean these need to be your hours. Please do not feel pressure to respond outside of your normal working hours. And I just thought that's such a powerful message um, because you know, especially working women, they tend to have you know, childcare responsibilities to balance as well. So they probably are logging on in the evening and then log back in the morning and you know it's much more um fragmented across yeah. their working day but there's ways around it now you don't need to physically be in the office um and i just think having something as simple as that on your email signature really empowers your workforce to think about well hang on a second i don't need to do a nine to nine to five nine to six what works best for me and as long as you're achieving the output and you're still succeeding in your role then it shouldn't really matter where you work or when you're working um i think the only the only problem is when you especially like if you're a working mother i think then childcare becomes really difficult and we were saying earlier like i love i've loved seeing colleagues children run on in the background of a call yeah. or kind of demanding to watch paw patrol or something it's <laughs> it's a really nice insight into their lives and you feel like you get to know them a bit more as people and you appreciate how much they're trying to juggle and i do i think actually that's going to be the trigger for things changing after covid is that only now will everyone's colleagues truly understand what you're going through in order to just do your work every single day and can yeah. be much more thoughtful and considerate yeah, in no, mind. I- 
I hundred percent agree. I, I saw an amazing thread on um, on Twitter yesterday. It was a, a chap called Nick Burgoyne. He's in Manchester. He's a data scientist, and uh, somebody had posted about just getting sick of all these motivational. I got up at six and re- read six books and then cooked the whole family breakfast, all that shit. And he put like a, his version of it pretty much about how there was two screaming kids and like, it's just like trying to fit in work, like how many coffees you've had, like just all these different things. And um, one of my directors is the same. He's got three kids under seven or something like that. Um, so he'll work very sporadically depending on who's jumping into the room. So I think there is just more of an acceptance for it now. So hopefully we don't lose that just because we're going back to the office, but you, you never really know. Yeah, I think I, 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 my background is very much around kind of workshops and engaging with people to design new experiences with technology. And it's really interesting trying to think about how we do it remotely. But I have found that yeah, I really miss having that face-to-face interaction. Yeah, um, if I'm on back-to-back Zoom calls, I'm exhausted by the end of it. I, I had five hours of back-to-back Zoom calls yesterday. I could barely speak afterwards. And I think it's because you're really focusing on people's videos to try and assess their reactions. Whereas if you're in a room with people, you much more naturally and subconsciously pick up how people are reacting. Yeah. So it does feel a little bit like my brain's going to overdrive, trying to overthink everything <laughs> and be one step ahead. Um, There's definitely something like that. Yeah, I I do think I think that it's been a revelation to see how much can still get done when working remotely. So I don't imagine that emergence will go back to work in an office anytime soon uh, because we've found a way around it. And there's so many tools out there that you can use now. It's there's no excuse if unless you really want to or there's a real reason um, you should be able to work remotely now. Yeah, I think that I mean I want to go work in the office, but that's just that's just a personal choice. Like I like working in yeah, an office. Same. But I think most companies now, especially if you work in technology, you'll have a smaller, less, potentially less fancy, less bells and whistles type office because you don't really need it. Like it's just a place for people to come and collaborate and then you can just work a bit more remotely as and when's dictated rather than being like a fixed day or something like that. Like it is a bit more fluid. I think that's probably going to be the biggest change. But I don't see 100% of people working from their living rooms forever. Like I just, I, I'm sick of being in my dining room slash office slash spare room yeah it's it's just tiring um but i have seen uh, and i really like this and it feels like actually it's doing a full circle barclays are getting well considering getting rid of their canary wolf office where obviously thousands of people traveling every day and instead they're going to open up their regional branches with their offices upstairs to be mini collaboration hubs which, oh, okay. like, it, when you think about it, that's a re- complete return to what we were doing in the seventies when you had regional branch managers and you know people in senior positions worked upstairs in the bank, and it's so much better for your personal life if you can just go to your local branch rather than everyone going to the same location in London. So I think we are going to see some really interesting innovative uses of space in order to have maximum collaboration in a way that yeah. suits people better. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I suppose just quickly back to emergence then, you said that you and the team have pretty big growth plans. Um, what In a kind of ideal world, what, what do you think the second half of 2020 looks like, kind of assuming we go back to some sort of normality? Uh, and yeah, what, what do you think the rest of this year and, and potentially next looks like? Um, so definitely growing the team as we win more work. Um, so we're 
industry agnostic. So we're working across everything from financial services, legal services to the airplane industry, uh, which is a very interesting industry to be considering at the moment. Um, So I think it's really just we really want to build out our presence and be known for doing some really amazing work in the tech world that does give you the quick wins that you, you know, that organizations need in order to get buy-in, but with constantly looking ahead to what's that bigger uh, vision that you've got and how can we achieve real profound transformation and take your senior leadership team on that journey with you. So we're going to be doing a lot more around mindset coaching with executive teams in the next few months. Um, actually, we've developed a full consulting framework of a whole range of products and services. So really, I, I just hopefully we'll just be running those services in anger and doing some great work with some great companies. Well, that sounds so, exciting. Um, yeah, and I think one of the things actually I didn't mention that we're really passionate about is obviously one of the big, you know, one of the big fears around artificial intelligence is that it's going to cause mass unemployment and it's going to displace people. And, you know, we're not just focused on AI emergence, we're working across all new and emerging tech, but we've got this really bold vision of net zero unemployment due to our technical projects. Um, so we work in collaboration with St Mungo's in order to train up vulnerable people to have the right tech skills to support them in getting jobs uh, through to actually just training organisations how they can best utilise existing skill sets rather than removing them completely. Uh, so I think that's something that we're really, I'm really passionate about, really interested in, especially over the next year, especially in response to covid Uh, to see how we can help support organisations in their mission to best utilise their staff, the skills they've got, and using technology to support them rather than replace them. Yeah, no, uh, that's a a really good point. Um, And probably going to be very important, yeah, post-COVID, like you said. And I suppose just lastly then, where uh, where's the best place to find uh, you and Emergence on like social media and stuff? Uh, You're quite active on LinkedIn and Twitter, right? Yes, yeah. I think it's Katie Gibbs one two three on Twitter. Yeah, you search Katie Gibbs. I should come up on LinkedIn, uh, and then it's um, emergencehq.com, uh, or you can search Emergence Partners on LinkedIn. Um, and you know, we're just starting to get active on our company profiles as well. So there will nice. be a lot more coming from us in that space as well. Hmm, perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, I'm really excited to see where Emergence uh, is in a few months time but also kind of next year as well so I'm sure we'll get you back on to to see how it's all progressed but yeah thank you very much for your time no thank you so much for having me it's always lovely to chat yeah I really enjoyed enjoyed that chat um, Katie and I have uh, spoken a few times um, and get on really well and uh, and kind of bounce off each other in terms of topics and, uh, and opinions so that was really good as I said at the start it was really fun to chat to someone who is from a non-technical background um, who's managed to carve out a career in AI um, I kind of show what's possible in terms of um, seniority and, and um, I don't know having that kind of gravitas um, within these companies um, both at a technical level and a business level which I think is a really important uh, learn um, as well as loads of other things that we covered as well so yeah I'll definitely be keeping an eye on, on Katie and Emergence Partners um, for the rest of this year I think they've got some some big plans and um, we'll do some really cool things but yeah that's, that's it for me for now so thank you very much for listening I really do appreciate it um, and thanks again to Cathcart Associates um, who, who literally make this all possible uh, so until next time goodbye